everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, and I will be joined shortly uh, by my co-host, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings out in San Diego. Uh, Rob's just finishing up a little business, and he will be diving in with us in a, in a couple of minutes. Uh, and as always, we have our crack producer, Dan Humiston, today uh, located in lovely Denver, Colorado. Um, so thank you, Dan, for uh, getting us on the air, even while you're on the road. Um We've got a really, really fun show today. Uh, we've got a great Grateful Dead show that we're featuring and uh, some really, really interesting uh, marijuana topics in terms of what's going on in the marijuana world and uh, things you don't want to miss because these are the issues of the day. And Rob and I will give our opinions on them, which may or may not be agreeable, but we'll find out. Uh, but let's dive right in. We're featuring the Grateful Dead today uh, from the Stanley Theater in lovely Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on March 6, 1981. And Dan, let's go with our first tune. Brown-Eyed Women, uh, a Grateful Dead favorite of all of ours, even though I know I got in trouble previously uh, when we had our good buddy Rob Bleatstein on the show, and I made some comment about how Brown-Eyed Woman doesn't necessarily make or break a show for me, and he and Rob gave me appropriate grief for that, because it is a wonderful tune, um, and uh, when Jerry's really going well with it, 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 it kind of takes on a life of its own. It's a great story. Uh, it's got great literary uh uh, images and uh, all that good stuff. I can't remember all those fancy words from high school English, but you guys know what I mean. Um, and and brown-eyed woman, uh, you know, it, it's it's just a great tune. You know, it, it kind of evokes the uh, image of the um, of the uh, distilleries and the uh, the bootleggers, uh, and uh, you know, living the life that they lived. And you know, this song is kind of telling that story, and uh, it's a lot of fun along the way. Um, I always laugh when I hear the song because uh, I've got some good buddies who live up in the uh, Minneapolis area, uh, my uh, Minneapolis deadhead buddies. And uh, we used to see shows up there from time to time. And when the city built the Hubert H. Humphrey Dome, uh, it was a dome, but with a soft roof that was held up by air pressure uh, from the building. It was one of those places where when you'd walk out the door at the end, it would kind of shove you out the door a little bit, the air pressure. Um, also uh, benefited the Minnesota Twins in the World Series a couple of times, but I won't say anything about that. The Humphrey Dome had a soft roof. Minnesota gets a lot of snow. And sure enough, once it snowed so hard that the roof of the Humphrey Dome uh, collapsed in. And in fact, I remember seeing a video of it that was on uh, some early version of YouTube or whatever we used to look at videos back then. And it's just a standard security video on the inside of the Humphrey Dome. And you're watching and you're watching. And of course, nothing's happening because nobody's there. And all of a sudden, right in the middle, you see this big dust or something, snow, obviously, uh, comes bursting down through the ceiling and spreads out all over the field. And uh, it snowed so hard that the roof caved in. And then uh, when we saw them up in Minnesota later that year in the Dome, and I, which I believe was a show with uh, when they were touring with Bob Dylan, maybe 1986. Um, and there we were, and they played Brown Eyed Women, and we all got a big uh, chuckle out of it because... Uh, snow so hard that the roof caved in and in fact uh just leave it to the dead to have a lyric to cover that uh, that possibility 
and they did and they were fun shows and uh we really enjoyed it so brown eyed woman is a really really special tune uh and the stanley theater is such a great place uh in, in, in i say in theory because i was never there i've heard great stories about it i know the great shows have come out of the stanley theater i know that pittsburgh is a true uh uh blue collar grateful dead kind of town um and hopefully uh, as we play more of today's show you will come to that same conclusion i am now formally joined by uh my partner rob hunt of Linnae holdings rob what's going on uh you know just uh hanging out in southern california and if you listen to the the first part of uh you know what we played there with the, the brown-eyed women uh it was more of an homage to uh, what's happening right now in california where we are receiving so much snow that everyone's roof is caving in so part of the reason I picked that clip, but we've gotten 106 inches just outside of Los Angeles in the last three days. Uh, all the roads are closed. Tahoe's roads are all closed. It is a, uh, a crazy, crazy snow event, which um, really triggered my thoughts uh, on that line of brown-eyed women. Excellent. So it just goes to show you can get it anywhere. Minneapolis, yes. Uh, Southern California, maybe not expecting it so much, but it is quite a sight to see. There's no doubt. I've been following that on the news and you know, it, it makes you definitely do a double take when you're looking at scenes that you normally imagine uh, as being snow free. And now all you can see is snow. Yeah, it's, it's nuts. And, uh, you know, you always think back to, you know, years ago, you always think it snowed more in the old days. And uh, for, for, for the most part, that's true. I mean, I'm definitely a believer in, in you know, there is a gradual global warming happening. Uh, you know, glaciers kind of tell the story, but, uh, but this year is, uh, is a little bit different. Uh, California has received more snow than, than I've ever seen. I, I know the Tahoe uh, resorts are expecting to stay open now till at least Memorial day, if not through 4th of July. So, uh, you know, my goodness, do we need it in the reservoirs and my goodness, do we need it in just the Southwest in general? But, uh, but this is definitely uh, one for the ages in terms of what a, what a snow season we're having not just here, but all the way, you know, through Utah and, and Colorado as well. And I, I would say rivals anything that you hear about from, you know, the 1920s, 1930s of just, you know, the epic, epic massive ski years or snow years. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm not, uh, I love skiing. I don't ski nearly as much as you. Uh, in fact, hardly as much as you. Um, but there's nothing like being out there. Uh, you know, that's, that's got to be a great feeling, I guess, if you're in Tahoe or one of those resorts and you can't get out unless you have an important business meeting the next day. Uh, but, you know, you get the whole slopes to yourself because nobody else is coming in. So, um, I, you know, I guess it depends on how you look at it and where you're sitting. But uh, yeah. strange things happen when we get lots of snow. So that was a, an excellent song to uh, to lead us off with. Uh, that's why that's why I chose it for today. And so we do have lots of other good stuff for um, the Stanley Theater as well. Uh, you know, it, it, as you said, Pittsburgh is, is a good blue collar, uh, Grateful Dead town. They always played some great shows there. Um, Stanley Theater was a was one of those you know classic old venues as well, and uh, the Dead played there a handful of times over the years. And you know, again, we try to cover different periods in Grateful Dead history, and uh, we haven't spent too much time on the early eighties. Um, yeah, it's uh, and, and there aren't that many. Believe it or not, there aren't that many early March shows. Uh, in fact, I think on March fourth, they only played uh, once in their entire history. Which is uh, which is nuts to me. Once you get into like a little further into March, you know, starting around March 10th or 12th, then all of a sudden you've got you know tons of material to choose from from all the uh, the spring tours they did on the East Coast. But there is uh, that early March, you know, late February, early March period where there really isn't that much material to draw from. 
well, even the dead had to take some time off. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe that for them was a play through the new year. Then you, they've got Chinese New Year's. They've got Mardi Gras. And before you know it, it's the end of February. So, you know, look, either way, uh, this is a great show. So glad to be listening to this one. And, um, yeah, it's just been really great. One thing I did want to just throw in really fast was uh, – now, by the time everyone listens to this, it'll be two weekends ago. Uh, but for me, this past weekend, I did have a chance to go see the uh, the Remain in Light show with uh, Adrian Ballou and Jerry Harrison. A tremendous show, a lot of fun. Vic Theater is a really small place. It was filled up with people. And um, we were just dancing from the beginning to the end. Um, and, it, you know, it, w- it was really a lot of fun for me. I never saw the talking heads and I was very excited to catch this. But it was interesting because afterwards I was talking to some of my buddies who were there. And they said, you know, I kind of get the same feeling seeing this show as I do when I go see Dead & Co. And what I realized was I never saw the Talking Heads. These guys who I was hanging out with had seen the Talking Heads. And so it gave me a, a whole new appreciation for those folks who have never seen The Grateful Dead but get to see Dead & Company. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, you just have to be able to enjoy uh, whatever format you get it in. And although it would have been great, obviously, to see the whole band, uh, Jerry Harrison played with a lot of energy, Adrian Ballou. Uh, is one of my favorite musicians out there, and they they had a, a full band. They they played all great uh, uh, Talking Heads tunes. I was surprised they didn't do the album itself in any particular order, but they did cover about five or six of the tunes throughout the show. Um, and for you know from where I was sitting, they all sounded really good. So uh, we enjoyed it. My wife had a nice birthday celebration. Lots of good positive energy. Um, even if there was uh, absolutely zero marijuana smoking going on. And, you know, since I never saw the talking heads, I can't quite speak to the crowd. But for some reason, I always imagine them more as like a psychedelic powder crowd than a marijuana smoking crowd. Very cool. I'm glad you had fun with that show. Uh, I was curious to know how it turned out. So it sounds like it was a, sounds like it was a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, get to go back and uh, see some of the guys. And I had never seen Adrian Blue at all. Um, unfortunately I never had a chance to see King Crimson while he was in the band, but, uh, yeah, it it was, it was, it was fun and it was very nice to see. Very enjoyable. Yeah. I still haven't seen him either. So, uh, glad that now one of us can say we have. Exactly. Um, lots happening in canvas this week too, huh? Yeah. I saw uh, saw that. Music and Grateful Dead. You know, it's, uh, I think one of the ones I'd like to start off on today is, uh, what's happening in Virginia. I don't know if you got a chance to see that, but you know, we've been waiting with great anticipation for uh, for Governor Youngkin to uh, to get that uh, market going and had a, a date definitive when it was supposed to start in 2024. And uh, now it's being pushed back indefinitely with it doesn't seem like any signs of life for uh, the Republican legislature in that state to move forward. And certainly no desire by the governor to, to fulfill the uh, requirement that was set forward by his predecessor in uh, in Northrum to uh, to get this thing done. And uh, not not really sure why. I mean, the, the way the Virginia market was uh, was put forward was, you know, essentially four licenses were granted. Each of the uh, sort of mini cartels, if you will, uh, was granted a specific geographic region in the state to, uh, to operate. And, uh, you know, Northern Virginia got one and Eastern another one and Western another one and Southern Virginia third, a fourth. Um, and those were seen to be, you know, pretty, pretty valuable markets for uh, for the companies that got them. Now they're looking like they're they're near worthless, uh, or at least in the near term they're near worthless. And if you're a struggling MSO, you know, trying to trying to jumpstart, you know, some revenue generation, this is a a pretty major um, blow to the industry. I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. You know, my thoughts are that the Republicans suck, and they just suck. And this is, you know, look, 
they're turning this into a partisan issue. Marijuana is not a partisan issue. Republicans get high. This is a partisan issue. And it's not, I don't think, because of its marijuana per se. I think it's because of this whole, we're the Republicans and it's all about morality and it's all about this and it's all about that. Glenn Youngkin can kiss our ass. He doesn't know anything about any of this. You know, he gets elected into office and he's going to torpedo, just like Christy Noem did. The people of, of the state, through their elected representatives, spoke on what they wanted to do. And now we have a Republican governor who doesn't give a damn. What happened to Republicans in personal rights that were always so important? What happened to Republicans in small government, right? They sell their souls just because, look, the cat's out of the bag. We saw what happened on Fox News. Now we don't even have to pretend. We all know that the, the, the nonsense that gets fed to the right is they're being spoon fed what they want to hear. So there's somebody in these newsrooms or, you know, in these governor's offices deciding these things and coming out with these statements. It, I, you know, I, I just don't get it. They're saying, well, possibly because he might ultimately prove to be a contender uh, in the upcoming presidential race. Um, whatever. The, they can put all the idiots they want in there. But you know what? Over 60 percent of the United States says that they approve of adult use marijuana. So if he's positioning himself for a run for president, he's not being honest on the issue either. Uh, it, 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 it's just beyond aggravating to me, um, you know, to once again see right-wing repressive government get in the way of what should not be their issue or their concern at all. Yeah. And, you know, this story that um, we're making reference to is uh, produced by our, our friends or published by our friends or MJ Business Daily. And there's a great quote from a, a good buddy of mine named Trent Volovec, who uh, is the chief strategy officer at Jushi. Uh, who actually had the probably, you know, Jushi was awarded the Northern Virginia license, the uh, the most valuable of all four. And, and, and Trent, I think, got it right in saying it's pretty simple. The governor, with his no vote, has voted yes to license cartels and organized crime in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And essentially what he's saying is if you don't want to listen to the will of the voter, it's not going to stop the people in your in your community from using cannabis. All you're doing now is handing it back to, you know, the, the, the Sinaloa cartel and the, uh, and, and the Zetas and the Gulf cartel are strategizing right now. I mean, clearly strategizing. It's well published in Mexican media uh, on how to take advantage of, you know, legalized cannabis in the United States. So whether it's those guys doing it or whether it's, you know, cannabis coming from uh, from the West Coast and from the illicit operators that, you know, the, the West Coast guys would love to see get out of the business because, you know, they don't need the, um, the, the added uh, confusion of, you know, everything that's happening there. You know, Trent, Trent nails it. You know, you're all you're doing is opening the door to the illicit market, which has been here previously that we're trying to get rid of and that's what your voters voted for and now your your personal bias is keeping it alive and so uh you know if youngkin's uh spokesperson macaulay porter's out there listening macaulay talk to your boss you're you're getting this one wrong and uh it's a a huge miscarriage of justice to your um to your constituents you know the other thing that i like out that i saw in there that that gives me some concern and, and maybe this is as much the media as anything else. It, they were talking about a crisis in a vacuum, and they said, um, like you say, the illicit markets pop up. But then they said, add to that the pro- proliferation of untested products containing hemp derived Delta 8 THC. And what's left is a status quo the Republicans and Democrats in Virginia alike have called a public health crisis. Okay, let's call bullshit on that, you know, for what it is. The Democrats, whatever they're saying is they're just pointing out that if you don't have a regulated market, you don't have a regulated market. The Republicans, I think, are playing games by you know trying to suggest uh, that consumption of Delta-8 uh, becomes a health hazard for people. 
I'm not a doctor. I haven't seen anything to suggest that that's the truth, though. Have you? Well, there was the one case in Virginia, I believe, of a four-year-old that ingested a, a handful of gummies that ended up dying um, from from an issue. But again, it hasn't been directly proven. It's been alleged the mother's been charged for, you know, for murder well, of the uh, of the child, but it hasn't been proven that it was uh, you know toxicity as caused by Delta Eight or whether or not there's other impurities or other things inside that product. Again, we've talked about it at Downstream on the show that you know Delta Eight is this like legal loophole that exists in the Farm Bill, and you know if they want to close a, a loophole, they should close a loophole. Um, but don't take it out on, on cannabis when every other state, you've got tens of millions of people that use cannabis all the time in legalized, regulated markets that haven't shown you know, any sort of issues there. And again, we've, we've demonstrated for you know, thousands of years that there is no toxic level that, that kills a person from cannabis. So you know, maybe this is the one exception, uh, but it's certainly you know, like by comparison to cigarettes or comparison to, to alcohol or you know, many other like, real drugs. It's not even in the same ballpark. So to to use you know the the tragic um, the, uh, death of a young child to to shut down an industry uh, or at least as a backdrop to do so uh, doesn't seem to be a great deal of sense. And it seems to me again to to be a, a very convenient political tool to you know push forward an agenda that you want with with some justification using some obscure thing that's happened. So no, I, th- I think that th- I think all of it's nonsense. Look, okay, let's just say for argument's sake that Delta 8 killed this kid, although it didn't, because I seem to recall that he had some sort of a heart condition too. So, you know, to the extent that the boy wasn't entirely healthy, uh, that's the primary story here. You know, every product in the world somebody is allergic to. Every product in the world can potentially kill the wrong person if they get exposed to it because they happen to have an allergic or a medical condition or something else. I'm not blaming the four-year-old boy. I'm not blaming his family. I'm saying those are the things in life that we all take for granted with everything else. And how do we know this? And how do we know that they're lying piles of crap here? How many people does alcohol kill every single year? How many college students? How many high school students? Where is somebody coming out and saying, well, we're going to shut down the alcohol industry because it's taking lives? This is a bullshit argument that they reserve for marijuana when they try to pretend that it's a Schedule 1 like everything else, although I'm willing to guess that these days the number of deaths related to cocaine and other Schedule 1 products, heroin, those are probably significantly less than alcohol and everything else. We let alcohol get sold. We let tobacco get sold. We let caffeine get sold. All of these are known contaminants to the human body that cause various levels of illness, sickness, or possible death. Nobody dies from THC. You might have an allergy to it. You might have an asthma condition that gets aggravated by it. But that's not to say that the THC itself is dangerous. We sell peanuts and kids are allergic to peanuts and die. We sell milk and large numbers of people have milk allergies. And if they drink milk, they would get very sick or possibly die. All of a sudden, we're going to pretend that because one person died from a THC gummy granted a four-year-old child, and I, I don't, again, take his death lightly at all. But like you say, what they're, they're going to politicize this kid and make him a martyr for something, for a problem that doesn't exist and use it to ram through a political agenda that has no basis in this country. Of course, there's a lot of things Republicans do that have no basis in this country. So this shouldn't be a total surprise. But the level that they're willing to sink to to make their case is very surprising. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, that kind of does lead into to the next thing I wanted to cover today, which is, you know, the flip side of it uh, on the illicit market, um, you know, surviving is, you know, the, there's a lot being published right now in, in Northern California about how the, the collapse of the cannabis industry in California 
is crippling, not just, you know, the, the farmers in NorCal, but the communities that surround those farmers uh, who, you know, all made the choice to try to get back into the legal market, you know, and really make, make a go of it that realize that, you know, they just can't make a living doing this. And, you know, they're, they're being driven out. There's mass migration of, of Northern California growers that are now going to other places such as Oklahoma, where it's just a lot easier for them to, to continue forward their craft. But, you know, again, this, this inures the benefit of the illicit market that these same guys just go, I'm throwing in the towel, but I know for sure I can start, you know, sending, you know, product to, to Virginia for the next X amount of years because Governor Youngkin has made this move. It's hard to uh, to quantify the ripple effects that a lot of these things have, but you know when you uh, when you keep illicit markets alive, um, you're you're keeping the, uh, the the illicit suppliers alive as well, and uh, you're doing it to the detriment of those that are actually trying to to enter the legal market. So you know I feel for the the communities like the Northern California communities that are in Humboldt and Mendocino and Trinity. And for that matter, you know, all, all around uh, Placer County as well and Stanislaus County, you know, there's there's a lot of, of Shasta. There's a ton of growers up in those areas that, you know, really try to do their best to, to enter the legal market that through overregulation that we've discussed in, in California are unable to do so. But, you know, if those guys go, OK, well, you know, screw it. I'm just going to go back to, you know, the quote traditional market. Um, you know, they, they still have a, uh, a buyer on the other side of this trade. In not just markets like Virginia, where you know Youngkin is objectively just stopping the market from forming, but even in other places where their regulations are so strong, the illicit market still represents a, a less expensive option to the legal market. So you know, and, and thoughts on that, and we can contra- contrast that to another California story from this week. Yeah, sure. So this is a this is a really confusing issue. I think for a lot of us, you know, a lot of us who are a little more old school, just meaning that we're older and we've been smoking weed a little bit longer, but, you know, for years and years and and even really still to this day, um, California weed uh, is the primary weed that, you know, comes through the people that I associate with um, that's available to be had at a relatively reasonable price uh, and on product level that's so much better than anything that you could find anywhere at an Illinois dispensary. Um, and for significantly less money, that it's a very simple decision. It's for, you know, for, for guys like me, nothing's changed. I go into the dispensary, I can walk around, I can check it out, um, but nothing's changed. So for me, I rely on these people more than I rely on the legal program. The flip side of that, though, is it would be nice if we could figure out a way to truly have a legal program where I could walk into a store and buy this exact same product doing it above board and so that the government can get their tax revenue and people can make their money and we can move on. Now, what makes it, these guys are in a classic catch 22, right? If they go into the legal market, they don't make enough money so they can't survive the way they used to. And if they stay in the illegal market, um, all they do is wind up driving, uh, not driving, what they wind up doing is destroying the, the, the regular market because the legal market's prices get too high. As long as there's a black market around, people go there. So I see this as an issue that the government has to solve. You know, the government's got to step in and say, look, we got these people up here in California, unless the state of California is ready to commit to just wiping those people out and saying, we don't need them. We don't want them. You know, even though they've, they've, they're the ones who have really created this industry on a, on a national basis, as we know it today. Um, and, you know, what can we do as a society to come up with ways to make it uh, affordable for these legacy growers to, to have a chance, you know, maybe they get grandfathered in with some types of certain exceptions that, you know, there's certain things that they can do that others don't do that'll find other ways for them, um, you know, to save money. 
uh, and, and be able to make a go of it. But I think it would be a, a terrible tip. It would be like if we go and say, yeah, we're going to go and we're going to shut down all the Napa wineries now. And we're just going to use these new wineries where we've given out licenses that are mostly located in the big cities. And from now on, you'll just buy your wine from them. People would scream bloody murder. Now, you know, wine in Napa is legal and, and marijuana from Mendocino isn't, but it should be maybe. And I, I'd like to be able to continue to access that, but in a way, you know, that, that allows our market to grow so that we can eventually have a true marijuana market where we can buy any quality of marijuana from anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then you do have, you know, these other mega groups that are, they're forming, um, you know, and there was an article that just, uh, was, out in the last couple of days as well uh, on, you know, some of these mega uh, farms are happening. And this one was specifically in the Washington Post talking about Glasshouse. You know, I'm a big fan of the Glasshouse guys. I'm a big fan of Graham Farrar and, and what he's doing down there. But, you know, the, the, the gist of the article is that there's people in California now that are betting long term on, you know, federal legalization. But we also have been watching right in front of us the collapse of the California industry. So, you know, how much of, of, of the quotes that are, you know, attributed in this Washington Post story are, are things that, you know, the, the Glasshouse folks are, are trying to impress upon investors that they've got a, speci- a very special formula? Or how much of it is, you know, just um, bravado? But, you know, I'm concerned that some of these uh, mega farms like this won't survive any better than, they, uh, than the small guys in Northern California, you know. They might build out the best facility the world has ever seen. I think right now they're, they're in the process of doing just that. But will it ever actually, you know, uh, be operated by by this company or will it eventually go into default or, you know, eventually go into receivership and then, you know, come back out once the, the feds have actually figured out that they failed on cannabis, where now it, you know, is given to a, a private equity group or some other group that comes in, you know, five years from now in, you know, cannabis 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever you want to call it. Uh, to to kind of resurrect something that other people, you know, had the right idea at the right time, but for the timing of it, uh, based on on you know federal illegality and the lack of ability to to cross state lines. So you know, it, it, I'm not saying this in any way to slight Graham and the Glasshouse team. As I said, I'm a huge fan of what those guys do, uh, but I'm just I'm hopeful that they're right on their uh, on their bet with timing. Look, you know, the goal would be to see all of these companies to be able to survive. I, I give people credit because they're 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 thinking outside of the box to some degree and trying to come up with ways uh, to be profitable, um, you know, in, in today's environment. Um, and 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 more luck to them. And you know, look, this is this is why people make the big money if they make the right bet on this, and you know, and it works out well for them, then they'll do well. If they made the wrong bet, then you know, like other businesses that don't that don't hit a home run, they'll figure that out too. Um, But what it really does, again, is it just impresses upon all of us the absolute need we have for rational, comprehensive, and, you know, financially feasible government regulation. Um, If we're going to say that... Look, if the government wants to just say the hell with it, go back to growing your weed and we'll just let people smoke it, fine. I don't have any problem with that. And I'm sure a lot of other people don't too. You know, this whole idea of the fentanyl thing, I'm sure there's marijuana that has fentanyl on it. I don't think there's a lot of it from what I can tell, you know, and and sitting around and trying to scare everybody. When we were kids, it was PCP that was on the marijuana. You know, angel dust, you'll smoke it and you'll want to kill people. 
you know, don't ever smoke this because you don't know if it has angel dust on it. It's like, okay, whatever. You know, we're not talking about cocaine that we know that 10 people along the way step on it and throw in whatever crap they have in their kitchen closet to make it look like the same volume is there. Um, we don't have to keep scaring the public and we don't have to keep screwing it up for the people that want to be uh, constructive and, and productive members of this industry and who are willing within reason to work within a certain framework to ensure all the other things that we want in a product that, that becomes a, a regulated product. I mean, I, look, the alternative is right to say, would we feel comfortable if we threw alcohol out the door and said, everybody just go back and, you know, run your own distilleries and your own bootlegging outfits. And, you know, I'm sure there's some people who would love it, but at the end of the day, I think there's a lot to be said for having an industry that makes sure that, you know, everything is done proper and safe and the proper equipment is used and whatever other stuff has to be, has to be looked into. But right now the government's kind of half in and half out and it's almost looking to the industry to try to solve the problems itself. And then you get creative guys and you have to worry if the government's going to then step again and slap you down and say, nope, sorry, wrong answer. Try again. Yeah. And that's a great segue into the last story I wanted to cover, which is um, uh, a story about a company called Bright Green, which is creative guys trying to creatively finance their business and uh, trying to use the um, the uh, EB-5 Immigration Investor Program to raise capital. And then what this highlights is that uh, in a lot of other times, EB-5s are used to entice otherwise you know, investors that, that may not uh, come into a transaction. But here's the primary driver of you know trying to raise this money. And they're trying to raise $500 million, which right now is... Anyone that listens to the show is aware there's you know very little in the way of invested uh, capital into the canvas space, especially for new ventures. You know, Bright Green is a, a New Mexico-based um, uh, uh, canvas business that you know came out with a fair amount of fanfare uh, not too long ago, and then proceeded to lose ninety percent of its market value, if not more. That now is going back out and making this new grandiose uh, claims that they're going to raise five hundred million bucks. You know, from a legal standpoint, I'm I'm very curious to see how the feds uh, would react to uh, any EB-5 visas being granted by putting money into a canvas-based business. And, you know, your, your thoughts on that one, Larry? Well, that that's a great point. I mean, you know, once again, where we all good business plans involving marijuana runs into federal law at one point or another. And if you're, you know... Will the government allow people to come into this country as 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 uh, green card or, or or full-time citizens under this program if their access is through their involvement in a cannabis business which is remains federally illegal and quite frankly i'll be i'll be very curious to see where this goes right because is the government going to say look we really need people like this uh educated people whatever intelligent so fine we're going to let you in um, or are they going to say, nope, we're going we're to continue this charade to the point where we're going to, you know, we're not, we're going to use it as a basis to not allow in, um, you know, people who could be, uh, you know, positive uh, influences in terms of having money, in terms of having job opportunities, developing job opportunities for other people, um, you know, the kind of people that Trump wants to let in. And, uh, but I, Either way, I mean, look, from a legal perspective, as you and I say all the time, I'm going to be very fascinated to see how this case gets played out and what 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 precedent is relied upon and ultimately uh, what rulings are made. Um, but I just think it's unfortunate that we, you know, it gets to this level where we have to go through something like this. Yeah, I, I do, too. And, uh, yeah, again, people are trying to be as creative as they possibly can right now, but we'll see whether or not uh, they run into additional roadblocks. 
And, you know, the only, the only people it's truly harmful for is the investment community as they make investments based on, you know, whatever, uh, whatever information is put forward to the market or the best available information they have, knowing that they're still subservient at any time to politicians changing their mind. I mean, you know, again, going back to Jushi in, in Virginia, it's a prime example that, you know, Jushi should have gotten a nice bump up in value when it received the, uh, the license to operate adult use cannabis in, uh, in Northern Virginia. And, you know, now that's been, uh, you know, artificially taken away from them. That's harmful to the investment community and, you know, the, the, the everyone that's put money into that business. So there's, there's gotta be consistency and there's gotta be ways that we can actually go out there and raise capital as a, as a industry without having to be so creative that we're trying to entice foreign investors through EB-5 visa programs to, uh, to come into the United States to invest in cannabis. Although I will say, uh, whoever this group's attorney was, man, total props to this. That, that's, that's something I never would have thought of. No, I don't do a whole lot of immigration work, so I, I wouldn't have really known about it. But, you know, I, I have to admire the creativity that we see in American lawyers who are trying to work with this industry, with this dichotomy that we talk about between state and federal law and run into these problems, types of, you know, federal problems all the time. And some of the steps that they'll go to to try and find a workaround. And, you know, even if ultimately the government says no, um, you know, I, I still have to say I'm, I'm incredibly impressed with the, with the creativity of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am too. But, uh, you know, I, I wish we didn't have to be so creative. And again, there's been a lot of guys on wall street that have gotten fabulously wealthy by creating, you know, a new product that's slightly different than what everyone else has thought of. And, you know, even if like those loopholes, they, that they uh, exploit, you know, get shut down later by, um, you know, by, by federal regulators. There's a lot of guys that have come out with some very, very novel ideas uh, in mm-hmm. the past. And, you know, this seems to be one that was, uh, that was done by a legal team rather than a financial team. Yeah. Um, wow. It's a lot, a lot of cannabis uh, stuff to discuss today when honestly there's a fair amount of good Grateful Dead stuff that, that we wanted to cover from this, um, from this show as well. So sure. maybe, maybe we jump back into it and, and get back to the Stanley theater and, you know, one of the things I love about this show, and I don't know if you've got a chance to listen to the whole thing, but the uh, the Cassidy, I think, from this night doesn't get nearly the credit as, you know, some other like monumental or sort of titanic Cassidy's over the years. But, you know, we, we cover Cassidy here and there. We certainly talked about um, talked about as a song, mm-hmm. but uh, but maybe maybe we'll play a quick clip and then, you know, do a sure. little discussion of, about the song itself. Absolutely. So for me, Larry, uh, Cassie, in terms of, you know, first set Bobby songs, probably was my favorite. Um, you know, Jack Straw was right there. Let It Grow was right there. But, you know, it's hard to say you know, which of the three. But, but Cassidy for me was, was as good as it got. And every show I saw where, you know, I got to see when I, I felt lucky. Um, and, and also, like, you've heard me talk about, uh, you know, the, the few interactions I got to have directly with, uh, with John Perry Barlow. And the one thing I'll say about, you know, one of the last times I saw him, was a buddy of mine had asked him of all the songs you're you know most proud of that you wrote you know which one which one is your favorite and with no hesitation he came back and said Cassidy 
So, you know, for that reason alone, when, when you've got the, um, the, the writer of the song that says, you know, this is the one that resonates best with me, uh, it's hard to discount it. Um, so Cassie, you know, I'm guessing one of your favorites as well. You know, um, I agree. It's one of those songs that is a right at the top of the Bob Weir catalog of songs he wrote or contributed to the Grateful Dead. Um, but you were kind enough today to send along a story with the music that I had a chance to read. And I have to say I was unfamiliar with the story itself, uh, but it, for me, how many times would you sit around with your Grateful Dead buddies, you know, arguing who was the song Cassidy written about? Well, Neil Cassidy, yeah. of course, it has to be Neil Cassidy. I mean, On the Road, Jack Kerouac, you know, uh, all those guys, uh, you know, it, it can only be them, right? And then all of a sudden you're like, well, no, then we all, you get to know the Grateful Dead enough to know about Eileen Law and about Rex Jackson and about Cassidy. It's like, well, maybe it's about her. It is spelled like her, even though it kind of sounds like they're talking about him. And in fact, we find out that he was inspired by both. Right. You know, and, and this is something that I actually tried to get my, uh, my good buddy, Chewy Smith on the show, who we had had as a guest about two years ago. And, uh, you know, Chewy actually reached out to me just uh, unsolicited a couple of weeks ago saying he was, you know, driving and um, doesn't listen to the Grateful Dead all that much anymore, but was, you know, he and I went on tour together in the early nineties and he just wrote me saying, you know, Hey, I was thinking about you today. Cause I put on the show and it's just like, you know, blew my mind by how good these guys were and, and how much I miss and love the Grateful Dead. And he's like, you know, it really made me think of, he was very good friends with John Barlow. And uh, he's like, it really made me think of the time I was sitting in the hotel room and Barlow was explaining to me what Cassie was about, you know, of, of sort of like the ending of one life and the, and the beginning of another. And, uh, you know, and specifically the line, you know, there he goes and here she, and, and now here she starts. Um, and just really like, you know, kind of, kind of the idea of like, like, Cassidy Law picked up where, where Neil Cassidy left off. And that's why when I found this article or when I found this thing that Barlow had, had penned, you know, it, it really um, resonated because it, it, it you know, I, I've always known that, um, that it was about Cassidy Law. And, and I've certainly heard, you know, um, you know, Big Steve talk about that it was about Neil Cassidy. And, you know, you know that there's there's parts to both. But until I until I heard it from Chewy and then, you know, read what Barlow put in this uh, in this um, article he put out you know, really how much it is about the ending of one life and the beginning of another. And it really makes Cassidy for me take on, you know, a bit more of a, of a new meaning um, in terms of, you know, the juxtaposition of, of old and new, the juxtaposition of, of, of him and her and all the rest of that, that, that goes into one song. And it really makes sense why, um, why Barlow loved it so much. Sure. You know, I, I'm sure from his perspective, uh, you know, to be able to tell that kind of a story is, you know, one of the things I liked about the Grateful Dead is that it wasn't uncommon for them to write songs about their own community uh, and, and to include characters from their own community in some of their songs. And, you know, this is just a classic example. And, you know, Neil Cassidy, of course, is 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 part of the whole foundation upon which the the whole, you know, hip beat generation out there in California was built. And, you know, the, one of the guys who was one of the you know, original, you know, kind of guiding muses, if you will, for the Grateful Dead. And, you know, the stories about him coming over and, you know, hanging out at 710 Ashbury and cooking and hanging out all night on his speed or whatever he was doing or, you know, just his natural flow. And, um, you know, what an important person. And yet then, you know, you also have Eileen Law, who is, you know, 
as, as close to like a mother for the deadheads as you'll ever find, um, you know, given her role in the whole thing and, and everything she's done. And she's obviously a very, very intricate part of that, uh, of that whole community. And, you know, when she was bringing a life into the middle of the community, it seems very natural that many of them there would, you know, feel some sort of a, a stake in the game. You know, this is Arlene, part of our family. We're always around now. She's having this baby. And, you know, that was, I think, a very cool thing about the Grateful Dead scene is because life went on for them. And although they were all part of the big Grateful Dead family, they all had their own families. They all had their own life experiences. Um, you know, and on this occasion, it, it was it was it was it was shared. And I love the I love the idea about uh, uh, Neil Cassidy going out and uh, Cassidy Law coming in, and um, it, it 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 flows very nicely. I think. Yep, I, I think so too. And that was one that I thought you know for our listeners, and you know, lots of people are, are, are very familiar with songs, but sometimes forget there is a, a story behind them. And uh, in this case, you know, it's, it's the combination of the two. I recommend you know looking up uh, you know Oranges of Cassidy or just Cassidy and John Perry Barlow, and you'll find find it on Google. Um, but it's a uh, it's a good one. So. Uh, you know, again, choosing things from this night to uh, to play, uh, not exactly easy, but I did have you know one other that I, I fear we'd close the uh, the show with today, um, and, and rare for me, uh, choosing two out of three songs, say being Bob Weir tunes instead of uh, Garcia songs. You know, it mm-hmm. doesn't happen very frequently for me. No, but um, you know this uh, this show in particular had such an interesting uh, such an interesting set list in that the second set opened with a, a Samson into it must have been the roses into an estimated, into a Franklin's and then throwing that it's must've been the roses in there. Such a strange choice, which you always think was a first set song. Uh, but, you know, wedging it between two of the most rocking tunes that the dead have in Samson and Franklin's uh, is, is a strange one. And then even having an estimated Franklin's, it wasn't all that common, you know? So uh, a really cool way to open the second set. And of those, of those four, it was tough to pick which one I wanted to, uh, to feature today. But the jam coming out of the estimated was pretty hot, and uh, we, we rarely talk about estimated. Uh, so it's it's one of those ones that uh, that I figured is is due for us to uh, to feature. So we'll we'll close out with with that one today um, after we, we say our goodbyes. But um, I do appreciate Larry that you uh, you kicked the show off without me after after I kind of prepared it. So again, you know, hats off to Larry Michigan who knows the way I think about uh, a lot of this music so well at this point that uh, when I tell him I'm going to be late to start a taping, he's able to jump right in and, and not miss a beat saying, you know, no problems. I'll jump right in and start featuring the Stanley theater and, and, and highlight uh, why Rob probably chose this one. So, so thank you for that. And uh, to everyone in the mountains of um, California, Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, uh, even Nevada, I hope you guys are all having a great time out there uh, during the storm cycle and wish I was not in Southern California right now. So I could join you. But what a great time to smoke some weed and listen to some Grateful Dead. And with that, I will talk to you all next week. Yeah, thanks, Rob. It, this was a great show, and it was a lot of fun. And, you know, uh, for better or for worse, we uh, we have started thinking quite a lot like that. And so uh, uh, it, it's fun. It's just a sign that, uh, you know, when you get folks together who like to talk about the same good stuff, great things happen. Um, and uh, we hope that that's what's happening here on our show and that uh, you're listening and enjoying it. So, as we head out here today and say goodbye to the Stanley Theater for March of 1981, uh, we will feature Estimated Profit. Thank you all for listening. Have a great week and enjoy your cannabis responsibly.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. How do cannabis CEOs balance growth and optimization strategies? What is THCO, Delta 10, and CBNA, and why should you care about these minor cannabinoids? And why is an endocannabinoid system covered in medical school? Most people think they're up to date in trends in the cannabis industry, but they're about six weeks behind. Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast and, of course, on PodConnects.